Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is a Florida-based aquatic restoration firm that's on a mission to restore Florida's water bodies and to protect our coastline communities against severe storms. You can check out their projects at seaandshoreline.com. And of course, Res. Res is the national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. I'm so excited to introduce this week's guest, Greg Connect. When I met Greg, he was at the Department of Environmental Protection, where he worked for two decades on some of the most consequential environmental restoration programs in the state. He's now the newly minted executive director of the Nature Conservancy in Florida, which is why I'm so grateful to have stolen a little bit of his time for this conversation. So let's get right to it. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you, Brett. Honored to be here. I usually start at the beginning with these conversations, but since it's so fresh for you, let's start with how it's going with the new gig. You're just named in March, right? The executive director. Seven weeks ago. Yep. Okay. First of all, congratulations publicly. And second... Have you had a chance to come up for air yet? <laughs> it's certainly been a whirlwind since I started. The interview process was was pretty intense. An organization like TNZ that's that's global, and in this case, you know, we have fifty state directors. I'm one of fifty, but Florida is an incredibly important state for the organization, so it's pretty rigorous. They take it very seriously, and so one of my commitments as part of the interview process was to get out on the road and meet our board of trustees and meet some of our donors and get out and meet staff. So I've kind of been on the road the last seven weeks out meeting meeting people and, and including partners. That's awesome. Now that we got that part out of the way, and then we'll talk more about sure. obviously yep. the conservancy yep. later on, but I want to start and get back to the beginning for you. You are a Polk County boy, right? I am a Polk County boy. Winter Haven. Winter Haven. That's, okay. Yep. And like our mutual friend, Jennifer Fitzwater, your family's actually from Missouri, right? St. Louis, Missouri, or the outskirts, yeah, sure, I guess. Sure. Yep. What brought your parents to Florida? Great question. You know, my father was a chemical engineer, went to school in, in Missouri, met my, my, uh, my mother, uh, his wife, there in Missouri, uh, graduated from Missouri School of Mines, with a degree in chemical engineering and got a job with U.S. Agrichem. Ended up with a job here in Florida, in Polk County specifically, Winter Haven, working as a, a plant manager for U.S. Agrichem in Fort Meade and Wachula and Bowling Ground, the, you know, the metropolises of, uh, <laughs> of those back in the 60s. Yeah, and, and and those are my old stomping grounds when I was at Swift Mud, and I know that those are those are not what you would call your, your typical bustling metropolises. But, so you live in Winter Haven, which I guess like almost dead center in the county, right? Pretty much so, yeah. And Pretty close. Go, and going down south to Fort Meade and Wachula, where your dad was working, sounds like an, an interesting backstory. Tell me a little bit about him personally and why he made some of those choices. Well, I, I think at the time, I'm guessing it was probably about a 60-minute drive, uh, depending on where he was going, which plant. We moved to, to, to Winter Haven because it was, I'm going to say metropolis. There wasn't a whole lot in Winter Haven at the time either, but it was, you know, a larger city. Right. And so he just decided, even as his job kind of went further and further south or the mines expanded further south, just to 
not move the family because we had already, you know, put in put a put in roots in in Winter Haven. I'm so glad that, you know, I literally went to elementary all through high school, and and still meet people that were like, oh, I would, you know, I went to Winter Haven High School, and mm. and so there's, you know, being in one place for 18 years, or in my case, going to a community college there, really did kind of form a you know, a, a long bond with a specific place that you watch change over time as well. Yeah, I guess uh, getting that uh, that obligatory, anytime I talk to someone else, I, I we spent the, until I was about five years old in in South Lakeland and, and grew up in, in East Hillsborough County. So I've got, a, anytime I hear someone from Polk County, it's the obligatory, can you believe how huge Polk County is now population-wise? I mean, it's, it's enormous. I think we're... 700, maybe pushing 750,000 people. I mean, when I was there, this is 2015 to 2000, oh, 2005 to 2007, right. it was probably 400,000 people, 450,000 people. Incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely changed. When I, you know, even in junior high and high school, I worked citrus and, and cattle after school or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, with, with a friend of mine, his, his, he was in the citrus business and, you know, all those places I drive down there now and they're, you know, they're all gone and they're, hmm. you know, they're subdivisions. So yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. Is it, I mean, is it weird for you? I guess that's, I mean, that's the description is the same, you know, same with, yeah, I think anyone that, that, you know, grew up in, in these kind of suburb, suburban areas is how much, how much it looks different than the place you grew up. And I grew up in the middle of what used to be orange groves and strawberry fields. And it's just, it's houses. Yeah, I mean, there's that, right? So there's just kind of the stark contrast. And and what I would say is it, you know, it all kind of at least ties back to the Nature Conservancy or or conservation for me and thinking about those places Mm. that the pastures I worked in and and those orange groves and the importance of agriculture. You know, I spent my afternoons when I wasn't working fishing specifically, you know, Lake Roy. Those places really had an impact on me. And and as I see those going away and recognizing that we're losing more and more, you know, natural spaces and agricultural spaces, it's it's a great concern. And We'll get to, I think, a, a little bit more of that later because I think it speaks to uh, a broader conversation. Some, I would say, interesting, somewhere between interesting and exciting things going on in that regard. It seems like it's getting uh, some significant attention. But let's stick with a bit with those early days in Winter Haven and what Greg Connect was like growing up. If someone follows you on Instagram, they know that you spent a, an immense amount of time outdoors. Was that always your MO? Oh, yeah. I was, like I said, fishing, you know, every chance I got. You know, a friend had a John boat, pretty much water-oriented during dove season, hunting after school with my buddies. Between that and then, you know, getting a car and, mm-hmm. you know, that, that side of things. Probably typical smile, what I would say, small-town America boy in his, you know, that, that had access to the water, you, you, you couldn't beat it. I could walk every day. I could walk halfway around a lake just with a fishing pole and, and just have a blast. Yeah. It's one of the uh, interesting things. I, it's been such a, a while now that I forget the stat, but Polk County has something like 550 odd lakes. I'm like, you know, beyond the other, you know, you know, gorgeous natural features, like that's an enormous number of lakes and, and, and places to, to uh, recreate and, and be around. So very cool. When when you were a kid, did you have any idea 
what you want to be when you grew up, so to speak? Like, what, did you know what you were going to study in college? Do you know what your what the plan for your life was? Did it have to do with the outdoors? Well, it certainly had. I I have vivid memories of getting National Geographic magazine and and looking at you know, and it's still kind of the you know that that way today, especially now that I know people who actually work you know with National Geographic, like Carlton Ward. It's mm. it's it's pretty cool, right? To but I think back in those days, and I would see these these articles and and one that 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 had a pretty formative impact on me was I can think of actually two that my father was wonderful about having an evening conversation at the dinner table or 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 after dinner kind of sitting there chatting and asking me you know how my day at school was blah 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 or what's new and and I remember one, you know, in this National Geographic and I had to have probably been I'm guessing, you know, 10 or 12 years old. But it really shaped the way I think about things. It was an an, an article about shark fishing in the Sea of Cortez. Mm. And, you know, this this of course National Geographic, the photography was amazing. You know, had this this pretty graphic photograph of sharks, you know, in nets, you know, hundreds of them. Mm. And I was just devastated about the, you know, this impact and went to my father and said, oh, my God, we, you know, we have to stop this. This is just terrible. And I, I remembered my father, you know, saying, well, essentially, well, what do you expect these people who were, you know, fishing for sharks to do? They have to eat. Right. And so. There were multiple of those conversations and, you know, whether it was National Geographic or other things like that, that, you know, as an outdoors person, I had this, you know, direction towards the outdoors and critters and all of that. For me, it was principally thinking about it from the, you know, from the the wildlife standpoint and my father reminding me that everything we do has an impact and it's not as easy as just always thinking about in this case, the sharks or polar right. bears or whatever. And it seems like that's kind of your your general attitude, at least as, as long as I've known you, is things are more complicated than just black or white. And so is, is that is that kind of, that's where it comes from is your dad's on your shoulder, you know, so to speak, you know, in your ear saying, hey, it's, you know, look at look at all the angles here. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he he at least taught me to, you know, to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes, if you will. And I would say that and it it brings back good good memories of you know, and there was there were also conversations that there was that point that we just philosophically disagreed on how much impact was, you know, was okay, right? And right. so, but but what he, again, what I would say he taught me was that everyone you meet, in this case, it happened to be my father, isn't always going to agree with you, <laughs> right? And, and right. so you either have to figure out a way to work with those people, or, you know, you can just, you can, you can write them off, but the, you know, the outcome is probably not going to be good, certainly with family. Yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, although, you know, th- Thanksgiving gets weirder and weirder every year, right. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about something for a minute because you and I were talking about how you were a massive poor decision maker. I'm going to lead that with saying that you were you were a cave diver, and I want you to explain to me because I've asked this question of a couple other folks that I know that 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 have done that. Is are you crazy, and why did you do that? Well, uh, you know what I would say is one: it's it's not really dangerous if it if it's done appropriately. I started diving in about 1983, 
And much like everything else in my life, uh, uh, once I decide to do something, I mean, I don't have 15 different hobbies. Mm -hmm. I really have. And my father actually said, you don't have hobbies. You have, you know, they become passions. And so with, with, with diving, I didn't go, you know, just learn how to dive. Then I actually started helping teach from the same person who taught me and then, you know, talk, took more and more. And, and so it was just one more thing, one more place when you couldn't go offshore or I didn't have access or couldn't make it to the Keys. It's mm. like, well, wait a minute. There's, there's really pretty water here in Florida. Why can't I just figure out how to, you know, go do that safely? And, mm. and so, you know, on top of that, like I said, once I kind of start something, I want to I want to kind of, I, I probably take it to the extreme. And so it was, <laughs> it was like, oh, well, I, not only did I learn how to cave dive, then it became like, well, what's the cutting edge? And so literally, you know, started doing, you know, mixed gas and all kinds of stuff. And the amount of effort that it was taking became too much, but it was amazing. And I'm so glad people are still doing it. Yeah. And I mean, you ended up teaching diving, right? And, 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 and ran a shop as well. Was that all down in Polk County? But some of that made its way up here. I ran a shop in Winter Haven that was a water sports store. You know, when you're when you're young and you you kind of think, oh well, I don't really need much to live on. And gee, if I can go diving every weekend and take people to Cozumel or whatever, what else could you ask for? <laughs> right. And then you know, at some point, it starts to dawn on you that yeah, but living in your you know in your parents' home until you're in your forties, you know, is is it's going to be harder to find a bride. And so, you know, my my wonderful now wife convinced me that, well, you know, she actually said she was coming up to at Florida State University. We were dating at the time, and she said, you can come with me, or you can, I'm going to use her words, you can stay here and be a bum. So anyhow, all, all of that to say, I came up to FSU and, and taught scuba here, and it was, a, you know, it was a perfect opportunity. I want to take just a moment to talk about my friends at Res. Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders, but the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, RES addresses the complex challenges facing our state with our unique operating model of taking full responsibility for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, RES is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join Res on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about Res and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I didn't want for that to go unmentioned. You and Angela are you know, kind of the environmental power couple because she's at, at DEP still um, and you spent many years there. And was she a big part of influencing you in terms of professionally when you got past the the diving? Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, she's the one who convinced me to finish school, has supported me ever since 
including I joined TNC about 11 years ago, and so I'll let you take us there in a minute. But, you know, when I was contemplating leaving DEP after 20 years, like you mentioned, Brett, it was, you know, I was hemming and hawing and, you know, what, holy smokes, this is such a difficult, you know, decision to make. She was and, and is amazing. She finally one morning just said, would you stop, you know, this back and forth and just do it. Everything will be fine. But you're no stranger to changing things up. It was just at, at DEP for many years, right? You, yeah. I mean, you started out at, you know, gosh, it's about as bottom as you can get. I think an OPS job you'd, you'd said before. All the, way, all the way up to, to where you were. Talk a little bit about that decision tree that got you to to the end of those 20 years and then and then beyond. Talk about some of those early days. You know, my, my very first job was uh, as an OPS person, and, and this was kind of connected to teaching it, you know, teaching scuba at FSU and also cave diving at, at Wakulla Springs. I met the park director uh, at, at Wakulla. His name was um, John Dodrell. And uh, he said, hey, I, I have this, you know, this project um, on the river here mapping aquatic vegetation. And the guy who was doing this project is in the Marines and, you know, got <laughs> called up. Could you finish this for me? And I said, well, sure, you know, and, and it, it paid again, you know, at the time what seemed like a, a reasonable amount of money. And, and I got to spend every day or as much time as I wanted to on the Wakulla River downstream of where all of the you know the boats could go so I, I was you know pretty much all by myself on this mm. incredibly beautiful place and so I started there and you know finished that that project and ended up getting an environmental specialist one job at on water working with it with what was at the time the point source section like looking at Point source discharges from wastewater, you know, mm. domestic wastewater and industrial wastewater plants, power plants, and other things. And then, well, well, hang on now. Let's, let's circle back to that <laughs> that first one again because, uh, I mean, the unnamed Marine who would later on become the secretary of, of DEP. Of DEP. That's exciting. And my boss, right? Um, that that unknown or the unnamed Marine was Mike Soul. I didn't know it at the time until later on. He and I were actually talking, and I said, you know, I did this OPS project. It at Wakulla Springs, and he kind of gave me this look like, what What are you talking about? I said, yeah, this, you know, I was told this guy, you know, ran off and left this project, and, and uh, <laughs> it was just kind of a, a, a chuckle. Again, back to the small world mm. of, you know, he and I working on this project together that years later he would be my, you know, would be my boss, and I actually literally worked directly for him in the secretary's office. Did, in between job you know first job and him being in the secretary's office and you and being directly under him did you have did your paths cross at the department much in between not not really you know my you know, my my career w was always on the on the water side uh you know both in the water quality standards program what's called the 319 program which is you know the kind of the non-point source stormwater program at the time at some point, I, I'm going to put in quotation marks, was, was fortunate enough to, to be asked to review this, this plan that was coming out by the, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers called the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, or actually at the time it was the restudy, asked to review it, right? And it's this you know, foot and a half thick set of documents <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. And, and I, 
I read it and you know made comments, but also thought there's no nobody's ever going to do this. You know, this is just the I can't imagine the restoration hmm. project this is. And what year was that? Was that like ninety eight? Well, two thousand. Well, it probably ninety eight when the restudy came out. The 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 plan was authorized in two thousand by Congress. So and that's at that point is when I really got sucked into you know Everglades restoration, and that became pretty much my big part of my later part of my career. Let's talk about that because obviously when you, when you talk about, you know, foot thick plans, uh, you're dealing with something significant. You really did work on some of the most consequential restoration projects probably in the world. I mean, certainly when you look at the Everglades, it's, it's enormous. But I want to talk about the first step in the north to south chain a little bit because I, I think it's instructive for, for folks that don't know or not familiar. You have the Kissimmee River, which had been straightened by the Army Corps of Engineers many, many years ago. And the state decided that, hey, we need to do something to restore this, to slow down the silt, the nutrients that are making its way to Lake Okeechobee, which then make their way to, to the Everglades. Were you involved at all with the, the Kissimmee River restoration as well? Or did, or did your milieu keep you farther south than that? You know, it's it's like the system. It's all connected. That you know, the the restoration of the Kissimmee River had already been authorized and was ongoing when I you know kind of got got involved with with the comprehensive Everglades restoration plan. But I would say that was really what kind of I think gave a lot of people comfort that we could restore the Everglades. You know, the Kissimmee was clearly not as big of a, a, a project, but there was and is you know, recognition that if you help things along, you, you can. And I would, I would argue the Everglades is another example of with time and effort and money and all of that, we can do some pretty amazing, amazing restoration. Are there any connections in your mind? It seems to me like there's this natural nexus between the Kissimmee River restoration, which required a lot of stakeholders working together because you're going to need a bunch of land to, to rebend a river and what you're doing now, which requires that kind of working together for you know, that, that common goal of, of protecting and preserving a place. I wasn't a part of those, those projects or that, those conversations. I'm curious uh, if you were able to, to draw anything from that. Oh, for sure. And, and I think that and it's been demonstrated over and over again. I mentioned this, you know, you, you can either try to be collaborative and, and, and work with partners or you can try to essentially tell everybody how to do it. You know, the Kissimmee's a great example of working with agriculture on putting the bins back in the river where landowners, a certain, you know, thing, right? You, you straighten it out and you said, well, we're going to do this and here's your, your new boundaries. And now we're going to go back later and say, oh, nope, we're going we're gonna to take that back from you. And, and, and what I would say, including, you know, the same thing with SERP, or the Conference of Everglades Restoration Plan, you know, what we learned was you're much better off working with the people who are going to be impacted and coming up with a plan that may not be the perfect plan, but it's the plan that's going to get you, you know, most of the way there and everybody's going to get something out of it than taking or, or maybe never, ever getting there because of litigation and other concerns. So... Yeah, I want to I want to ask about that in the in the realm of imperfect plans. SERP is certainly has to be at the top of the list. I mean, as important as the work is, 
it does not look the way it did 20 years ago. What is that process like in your mind? Tell a little bit about how you have to adjust on the fly when you talk about things like storing an immense amount of water to make sure you're you know, removing nutrients and or redirecting water to make sure it's going to the right places. Well, yeah, I mean, there's certainly lessons to be learned and continue to be learned, honestly, that I, I actually am excited about being able to translate to other parts of the state because the scale, you know, on one hand, it's a pretty big experiment. You know, the original stormwater treatment areas, you know, constructed wetlands of the size that we have in the Everglades was was never done before. And, you know, there was there was science and, uh, and of course, there's lots of opinions on, well, we should do this or we should do that. Until you really do it, until you construct it and operate it and you think about what the operation and maintenance costs along with things are. And then there's, you know, the unintended consequences of, you know, species moving in that you never thought would happen. You know, I would say that what's happened with the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan is that while taking probably longer and being more expensive than anybody ever thought it would, I would say that we're on a pretty good track. The, you know, amount of resources, especially lately, that have going in into it give me hope that we're going to get there. And it's also taught us that we can take some of the things that we've learned about water and water management and hydrology and water quality treatment and transfer it anywhere in the state, anywhere in the country. Yeah, it, I mean, and that, that idea, on, on certainly on a much smaller scale, is, is done all the time now right? To, to improve water quality. Is that extra time and expense, how much of that is owed to federal, and I'm using my quote fingers here, partners and, and lawsuits in that process? I mean, how much did we lose in your mind? Was that a huge factor or how, you know, how much, you ask, if you ask Henry Dean, he would say, I don't know what, gosh, I don't know what you guys are fighting over. It's like we're trying to, we're trying to fix something and all we're doing is slowing ourselves down. What do you think about that? Well, it's easy, right, to kind of to kind of point fingers. I, I would just say a couple things. I, I think that any government, you know, and the, the bigger the government, the more steps there are, whether it's, you know, any federal agency has a lot of, you know, hoops they have to go through. And if anybody asks, you know, the, the Nature Conservancy has its own hoops that would probably, you know, quite frankly, irritate somebody who didn't have... 50 state chapters and then was in 76 countries, right? I mean, we have we have legal conversations <laughs> that I never, ever thought the Nature Conservancy would be having. And so, and that's because we are in different countries and, you know, so there is that, there's no doubt. And Henry and I are, I, I certainly, you know, even using my name in the same sentence as his, <laughs> you know, makes me feel really good. There's no doubt that litigation and some of these other things have, have just slowed things down tremendously and, and made it much more expensive. It sounds like, and you tell me if it's a, a function of your personality or, or just reality, is you don't, with those frustrations, you never struck me as someone who was to the point of, say, exasperation or, or cynicism. Is that a fair description? Sure. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's the same thing. If, if, if I can't help fix it, then it's pretty much, well, then why, why should anybody else? And, and I, I won't pretend like there weren't ever days of frustration um, where, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about, no offense to my, my lawyer friends that, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about a, a, a may versus a shall, but, you know, as a whole, 
I think if you can get 95% there and really focus on that and not get down into, you know, and that, that's not to say you can't always do that, but holy smokes, we, we miss an awful lot of big opportunities because we're, you know, we're stuck on that, that 1%. I'll save the, I'll save the big question relating that entire topic until later on. I want to I want to switch now to that decision point you talked about your conversation with Angela. 20 years is a long time to be somewhere. You've gotten used to something, you've gotten really good at something and something else comes along. What was the actual trigger point in your mind saying, was it just hey, this is a great new challenge or I believe in in that mission, I want to explore that? Yeah. Uh, well, let, let me give a little bit of backstory if I can. Yeah. So at the time, you know, I was, I was going to say knee deep, probably much deeper in, in the Conference of Everglades Restoration Plan. I was, you know, working for directly for, in the secretary's office, representing the state on that with, you know, the Army Corps and Department of Interior and all kinds of stakeholders, you know, those meetings, and they still do probably have 20 plus entities sitting around a table and one of those happened to be a representative from the Nature Conservancy. Her name's Jenny Connor. And she was the Nature Conservancy's, the Florida chapter's lobbyist, essentially. And she saw me one day and said, hey, Greg, you know, we have a position open in the Florida chapter. I think you should apply. And I said, you know, Jenny, I, you know, I, I, I've been with DEP 20 years. I'm really happy. I'm, you know, I'm working directly for the secretary. What else could you really add? And she being a great lobbyist, which, you know, those people who are lobbyists and are good at it know that you don't take no for an answer, right? And she kept at me, and I think I actually thanked her when I got this new position as the executive director, but she wouldn't leave it be and said, just apply. And so I applied, and I, you know, they reached out for an interview, and then it was kind of like, oh, well, this is kind of serious now. I, I, I Before it was kind of like, well, it never hurts to apply, blah, blah, blah. And so... I got online and started looking at what all the Nature Conservancy did. Now, remember, this is a, a conservation organization that I had a history with here in Florida, working with for, for many years, right? And I kind of thought I knew what the Nature Conservancy did. And I think you would find that same thing with most people that right. you talk to. You say, the Nature Conservancy, they're like, oh, yeah, I know them. They buy land. I got on the, you know, on the website and started looking at all the things that the Nature Conservancy did and got really, really excited. Hmm. And, you know, that was kind of the, really the point at which it changed from a, huh, maybe this would be interesting to, uh, what would that look like? All right, let's pause for a moment to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. As we in Florida wonder what the future holds when we face the storm season ahead, Sea and Shoreline is working to protect our coastline communities against severe storms by installing a variety of green and gray infrastructure solutions to make our cities and counties more resilient. These solutions include seagrass restoration, mangroves, oyster reefs, riprap, oyster breakwaters, and something called a WAD, which stands for Wave Attenuation Device. By installing their patented WADs, Sea and Shoreline can help protect our communities against sea level rise and storm surges by diffusing wave energy stopping shoreline erosion, and even rebuilding shorelines through sand accretion. To learn more about how Sea and Shoreline can protect your community, visit seaandshoreline.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. What was, what was that first job and, and what did you do? Well, my, my first job was indeed uh, as, uh, you know, the, the title was Director of Protection, and it was working with landowners and other constituents trying to protect their land through either Florida, you know, the existing land protection programs we have like Florida Forever 
or the you know, Department of Agriculture's Rural and Family Lands Program, or other programs like under the Natural Resources Conservation Service under the Department of Agriculture. So, you know, working with landowners to get their, you know, to get their property protected. So it just kind of started there and grew as, as my career seems to have done. I, you know, I kind of get someplace and, and am not satisfied with just the current, you know, role that I'm in and start asking questions or start saying, hey, what if we, mm-hmm. and, and that's, I think, how I ended up in, in literally in this seat here. <laughs> nice. For folks that don't know, and you can probably count me as one of those folks that is somewhere between don't they buy land and hey, there's some other cool things going on here. But I want to start with that land buying part because I think a lot of people may not be, unless you you know worked in some place or had a job in a water management district or DEP or someplace like that, where you were buying land or working with trying to buy land from willing landowners. How does that work for the nature concern? We talk about that process a little bit about how, because you, you are a lot of times the hinge point for landowners being willing to work toward protecting that property in perpetuity. Yeah, and so so the Nature Conservancy as an organization uh, started back in the in the mid nineteen fifties, and that's how we how we came to being. We came to being in you know in, in New York State actually with a group of folks who were concerned about a piece of property that was potentially going to be developed. And, you know, these are these are just regular people like, you know, like you and me, weren't even in the conservation world or anything else. And they actually mortgaged their houses to get enough money to be able to purchase this piece of property. And so the Nature Conservancy as an organization kind of grew organically state by state with folks kind of saying, hey, we could do the same thing. And then, in, you know, it, at some point they recognize that, well, if you're going to do this and you're going to get big enough to do that, we, we need to have some paid staff and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, like I said, the, the Nature Conservancy in Florida was founded in the 1960s. And our primary role for, for many, many year, decades really was in the land acquisition business. We did that in, in multiple ways when the, you know, the Florida Forever and before that, the preservation the, uh, P2000 yeah. Uh, yeah. program, you know, we and our trustees said these are great opportunities for us to leverage public slash ad valorem and other dollars to put back into the landscape. And we can help determine where that should go. And in many cases, we can actually be the, you know, the entity that, that brings landowners in the door, can help negotiate. Sometimes we bridge the, you know, the financial gap. So we, we do lots of roles and we have a pretty phenomenal group of folks who are so well versed in incredibly complicated land transactions. And I'm proud to say, you know, here in Florida, we, we have our actual fingerprints of the a little over 9 million acres that are in conservation, mostly public lands, we have about a one point, about a 1.3 million acres have our, our fingerprints on them. Wow, it's a big deal. Yeah. You, you mentioned your trustees and you mentioned funding sources. Talk about that relationship. I, you know, I had nine board members at a water management district. There are places where you have a secretary and uh, and a governor and whatnot when you're at DP. Talk about talk about them and talk about their relationship to the overall mission in that regard. The Nature Conservancy as an organization, we're we are one five oh one C three. So we're you know, we're we're kind of one 
nonprofit that's that's governed by a, a board of tr- trustees, a global board of trustees. And then underneath that, like I mentioned, we have, you know, 50 state chapters. Our trustees don't really have a fiduciary responsibility, so to speak, but they do have an overall responsibility of making sure that we're spending our funds wisely. I am so fortunate to have an amazing, absolutely amazing board of trustees. I have 22 trustees from all across the state, from Apalachicola all the way down to Key West of all walks of life. And I will say, because it's such a broad group of of individuals with with different expertise, that's wonderful. And as you can imagine, 22 individuals all have 22 positions and ideas, and they're all willing to give. It's just finding out what that that right space for, for each of them is. Nice. You mentioned, I think, you talked about the, the difference in the approach of choosing uh, properties to go after. When, you know, whether I was at the, the district or other folks, when you look at buying property, there are essentially two ways to do it, right? You either have a willing seller, and, and so that's place and time, you know, dependent. They say, yeah, I, I want to talk about that. Or people talk about eminent domain when something is quote unquote necessary, but you're finding this spot in the middle is that is that right where you're able to go after say things that are priorities for a natural system and then and then go approach landowners like that or how how do you decide the places to go after that's a good question and and i would say there's more places than there there (laughs) is ability whether that's financial ability or in the case of the nature conservancies you know we, we can only be in so many places and it's it's pretty cool. We get you know we get phone calls almost every day from a landowner saying you know I would I have this piece of property that I would like to see protected and you know we can all like I said we can only be in so many places. But the great thing is there are now here in Florida so many smaller land trusts that that have that opportunity to think very locally, and so we try to connect them with those kinds of folks. For us, it's it's where do we have history? Where do we have relationships? where do we bring value? You know, we don't, we don't want to just be one more voice in the room or, or, you know, one more entity trying to scramble for dollars. If there's already somebody there, then we don't need to be there. And where's the most threat? And then probably the, 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 the one where we do, the Nature Conservancy kind of has a, a, a unique niche is on really big land transactions. There, there've been some recent transactions within the last few years, you know, where we've brought our own, philanthropic dollars to the tune of over a million, million and a half of our own dollars to the, you know, mm-hmm. to the table. And, you know, that's not bragging. It's just we're so fortunate as a large organization to be able to to oftentimes be able to, you know, to close some of these gaps that, you know, that smaller organizations can, just can't do. Yeah, it was the, and it was a significant purchase. I'm going to, I'm a Northwest Florida guy now, having yep. for many, many years. Is that how you got to that Bluffs The Bluffs of St. Teresa, yep. Yeah, talk yep. a little bit about the players there, just to kind of give people an idea of, the, the scope of the things that the conservancy works on and and how that came to fruition yeah and and, and that's an interesting property w- one of several properties that was when Saint Joe decided to you know divest in in some of their properties Saint Joe paper company th- there were several properties that they divested of and 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 we at the nature Conservancy even before that had had our eyes <laughs> I bet if you went back 20 years you could find plans of ours that 
identified the bluffs of St. Teresa, Lake Wimico, kind of that whole panhandle, coastal connectedness. You know, so we'd been talking about this for many, many years and made multiple runs at, you know, in different ways of trying to get those, get that property. But the bluffs was available. There were Gulf oil spill funds available, but, you know, not to cover the complete purchase. And we worked with DEP and brought some of our own money, you know, to acquire that. And again, now it's going to, it's, it's partly DEP property that's, you know, that's, that's state park and, and partly Florida State Forest. Mm-hmm. And is an amazing piece of property that, that I'm just so happy that TNC could, you know, can play a role in getting that piece of property protected. And that was, that would have been effectuated, you would have already been in more of the uh, government affairs communication side of things by that point, right? Yep. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, you know, so for the, the probably past four years, I was the deputy executive director and had government relations uh, and conservation underneath me. And so that was, again, one of those opportunities of, it's been on the list we know that this is one of those coastal properties that that honestly, you know, will rebound and will go. And so, taking advantage of, like I said, working with all of the partners to, I like to use the word, cobble together the you know the funds to make it happen, and then have you know someone like the state being willing to manage the property. And and I'll just tell you, I mean, we're we continue to work with with both entities, the you know the state park service as well as the the Florida Forest Service on the restoration of that piece of property and it's it's you know a decade or two decades from now it's it's going to be unbelievable and some of those i would say normally you're going back to a place at dp where you have a division of state lands and and it's like hey we're going to go back and see old friends but those are some different faces though than when you were at dp that that do that kind of work is it building relationships with those folks the people that are in charge of of Helping to bird dog and 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 close land land buying deals as well that you're that you're working on. Talk about the, those relationships a little bit. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. You know, be, like I said, being on the other side, right? So when when yeah. you're in the you know in the DEP chair and and a you know a nonprofit, whoever it is, you know, reaches out to you and says, "Hey, have I got a deal for you?" Or <laughs> I you know I I have a suggestion of what you should do. It's a little bit different. I'll just be honest. You know, it's like okay, you know, we're 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 the we're the state of Florida, or we're the federal government, or or whoever. And so, you know, we try to be thoughtful about you know you know about what it's like to be on on that side. And I I would hope that you know the, the secretary Secretary Hamilton or any of his his folks would say you know the Nature Conservancy always approaches us from the standpoint of being a partner, we offer to help a lot. And I hope that if they don't want our, you know, our help, they would be honest and say, you know, hey, we, we, we don't, we don't need your help, you know, because it is, it's, you know, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's, and you can get short-term gains or you can get long-term gains. And, you know, the Nature Conservancy is here and has been here. And it's, it's all about those long-term relationships. Do you have a, a guiding philosophy or maybe a set of principles that you rely on, whether it's division of state lands and, and partners like that, or convincing legislators, the public at large, at the importance of not just a particular purchase, but the mission of the Nature Conservancy as a whole. I think, and our polling has demonstrated this, not just our polling, most of the polling, right, that the public, 
and you can use that however you want, but right. the public believes strongly in several things. They believe in water, right, and, and clean water and, and you know abundant water, and that's played out in Florida many, many times, many, many polls. They also believe strongly in conservation and in green space. And so, you know, from my standpoint, you know, call it a, a philosophy or tenet, you know, it first you got to be willing to have the honest conversations. And once you kind of can get to that point of, well, what is it that we're trying to accomplish and why do we think it's important? Then I think you can actually start having the conversation of how do you do it, right? And, and, and it, it all goes back to, you know, your earlier question, Brett, of, you know, if you just assume that everybody needs to think the way that you do, whether you're a, you know, a small county who's trying to grow your tax base, you know, for me to drop in there and say, oh, you, you know, you guys should do X, Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't want to be like some other county. It's just, I, I mean, so, so my point is, you really, for from me and the Nature Conservancy, I mean, we are a nonpartisan group. We're non-confrontational, and so we know that the way to do these things is with partners, and those partners are, include everybody from you know the, the legislature to state governments to landowners to others in the conservation world, because that's the only way we're going to get it done. So take me from the the silo of that mission, because it's more than just that at the, the Conservancy, but take me to the outside of the silo into the larger realm of restoring natural systems writ large. And the one that comes to my mind most immediately, uh, because in, in the news quite a bit, is Indian River Lagoon. Mm. If my old friend Paul Thorpe at the Northwest Florida Water Management District hears this, and I hope he does because his face will melt off, it, it, for me, it's always been fix the problem at hand, and so he and I would always have these, you know, these discussions. Sometimes spirited, sometimes not. About what you know, what to do first. You know, do we deal with uh, stormwater runoff and septic tanks and uh, advanced treatment of wastewater treatment facilities, or do we do we buy land? And it took him a while, you know, over the years. And it, I, I'm a bit stubborn, and so for me, it was like. Hey, maybe it's both. Is that is that the approach that the conservancy takes to things like that, or is it really how can how can you fit in that less broad mission into a broader mission, or do you do the whole thing? Yeah, well, uh, good question. And, and I I would say we we sometimes still struggle with you know what's that what's that balance? We, I, I mentioned we were you know we started in the land acquisition business. And then we recognized that just buying land and not doing land management on it mm. was important. So we kind of expanded to, you know, a land management and we have a, you know, an amazing prescribed fire crew and we train, you know, folks on prescribed fire and invasive exotic removal, you know, and then we started looking around and saying, well, okay, that's great, you know, for the uplands. But now what other problems exist? And we've done coral restoration in the Keys. And, you know, part of that was, as I mentioned, looking around and saying, well, where isn't there somebody and can we or is there a philanthropic opportunity there to kind of try something? And so, you know, we've kind of continued to do that. 
We do freshwater work and we do climate work and we do marine work and, you know, of course, do land work. It, you know, sometimes it can it can seem like we're trying to do everything, mm. but we try to be focused on where can we bring value. And, you know, I would argue that the Indian River Lagoon is one of those places where we think we can bring value mm. and focus and there's lots of opportunity there. And I, I do think it's both. I mean, I, I don't I don't yeah. think you can just say, oh, well, we're just going to deal with septic tanks and we're not going to deal with stormwater. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but I want to pause to give credit to or point out one of those things that you talked about. You talked about land management. And from my perspective, we deal with you know 200 at the water management district when I was still there, 225,000 acres of natural area, most of it around water, but some of it in, in Upland. And the Nature Conservancy is considered very well respected part of broader teams that include both government and non-governmental entities, but you're the major non-governmental entity doing, the, whether it be the day-to-day activities, but also those more difficult tasks of prescribed fire and, and things like that. Is that something that the the conservancy takes a great deal of pride in or effort? Was it was it by design or is it, just, hey, we, we ended up being good at this? Well, I, you know, I don't don't really know the history from the standpoint of I, I think a lot of it was, I mean, as being a big landowner ourselves. So in Florida, you know, we own, you know, over 40,000 acres ourselves. Right. And so mm-hmm. when you own it, you also have to end up figuring out how to manage it. And, you know, fortunately, we do have the resources and ability to kind of start figuring some of this stuff out. And I'll, you know, as an example, it, that goes kind of hand in hand with the prescribed fire, certainly here in, in Florida, you know, is our longleaf pine restoration that we work with the district on mm-hmm. as well. And in addition to, I mean, I think many of us figured out how to plant longleaf pine trees, but then it became the, okay, well, that that's not really necessarily the system we're trying to restore. We're trying to actually restore the system, right, which includes ground cover and native grasses and and how do we do that, right? And and we have, again, the Nature Conservancy because our donors honestly trust us to make good decisions with their money. And we think very, you know, I, I mean, that's a pretty big tenet for me is to make sure we're, we're spending it wisely. You know, so we can think about how do, can we, and I would say we're innovators in that way. And we have been innovators on ground cover restoration in, in longleaf pine. And now we have to figure out how do we scale those things up much right. much broader yeah and and it doesn't stop there right I, you mentioned i didn't know about the the coral reef before uh what i do know about is going beyond the grasses the the trees into the actual things that inhabit those places right and in, 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 at least in northwest florida that includes gopher tortoises that includes the indigo snake which had almost completely disappeared from from north florida how is that going the the indigo snake I think we're on year. So we're we're working with uh, uh, other groups. You know, we don't we're not growing the snakes, but there's there's a group that actually grows the snakes up along with, you know, other researchers and, of course, FWC and the Fish and Wildlife Service Mm. because, you know, they're endangered and super wonderful snakes. And so we volunteered at our Apalachicola Bluffs and Ravines property 
to be, you know, essentially a site that, that we could do releases and also s- some of those snakes are, you know, are actually uh, have a transmitter. So we can start learning, you know, what is their range, how many of them are, are being successful. I think this, this we actually just did a release about a month ago. You can find it on the website that was the seventh year in North Florida that we've released indigo snakes hmm. with the hope of, again, rebuilding that population. You know, what I tell, you know, my, especially my, my marketing folks is that's all part of this wildlife corridor story. It's not just this and what Carlton and Mallory and, and others have done, you know, for recognizing that, you know, the, the need for a corridor is amazing. And you've got to be able to tell those stories like the indigo snake of, you know, that's why we need it. Yeah, and there's a lot uh, to that subject. There's a a lot of push now. Folks like Wilton Simpson, who was the Senate president, now the the state's ag commissioner, for those wildlife corridors that includes not just wild places like the conservancy land or uh, water management district land, but but agricultural land. Right? How how involved is the conservancy in helping to pull all of those things together to to, to help form that corridor? I would say we're we're one of many partners, obviously working with with President Pasadomo and and Speaker Renner, and I mean what what they have done again right. in their their first term here has been amazing, right? Supporting land acquisition programs, and you know they recognize again that the agricultural community is a key to recognizing or realizing maybe I should say the you know the Florida Wildlife Corridor the only way it's going to happen is by protecting you know and again when I say protection it doesn't necessarily mean that you know us buying it may mean easements it may mean something completely new that we haven't thought about but how do we keep those you know those agricultural lands and agriculture and uh and and as you mentioned that you know the, the commissioner is key to you know is key to that as well Jumping back to Indian River Lagoon, I, I don't want to leave it unsaid because significant legislation has been passed, House Bill 1379, that deals in a broad range of subjects. But I think the the central theme there is the Indian River Lagoon restoration program. Are you satisfied with the end result of, of that product? Do you think there's something missing there that you still want to work on? Well, what I would say is there's something that we are working on, and you know I think it's it's probably you know the the funding and other, there's lots of plans, right? I mean there's there's multiple plans, they're good plans. Mm. Certainly, we we I'm gonna use the we as the collective. We recognize that you know septic tanks all across Florida, you know, are an issue uh, in 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 places close, especially close to to water bodies. The the one thing that that we've been thinking a lot about and I am am pretty excited that we're going to be able to help happen is looking at stormwater which really hasn't, you know, the actual stormwater treatment side of things hasn't really changed in decades, right? I mean, it's right. you know, you build a pond, you collect x amount of water and you know, you put in a a fixed crest weir and when it fills up enough that it spills over then you know it discharges and then the next storm comes you know well we, we've been working with some folks uh, on on changing or at least evaluating may, I, I will say changing because the technology's demonstrated and we've we've done this the nature conservancy's done this in a few places across the country including in the chesapeake and changing from you know this passive kinds of stormwater treatment to an active mm. 
uh, stormwater treatment. And what I've kind of the way I've explained it to, you know, to lay folks is, you know, we have so many smart technologies now, like your thermostat now can tell you, not only can it tell you when you tell, not only does it tell when you're home, but it actually can tell, oh, if you change the thermostat X number of times, I start figuring, it starts figuring out what your comfort zones are. And, right. you know, we have all of these other technologies and, and this essentially in a, in a very simplistic way, instead of just accepting that, you know, we're going to have a stagnant pond, can look at weather and determine, oh, it's going to rain and I am going to likely need capacity. I can go ahead and discharge some very, very clean water and and not let it mix with, you know, water that's going to be, you know, newer water and discharge it and actually free up more capacity, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's pretty, it's wonderful. And, and why I'm excited about it is all across the state, we have these places that are, there's not much opportunity because they're, they're fairly built out. So what are we going to do? I mean, if we want to get nutrient removal out of these places, we're going to have to think new. And this is one of those ways, ways of doing that. And so we have some potential for some philanthropic dollars to demonstrate and work with some local governments on retrofitting some existing stormwater ponds. And then my, you know, my, my ultimate hope here is that once we demonstrate and show people that, that this is a technology that it's demonstrated now, it's just how do we get it to go? We like to use the word viral, but, mm-hmm. you know, essentially there's no doubt in my mind we're going to see active stormwater management across the state of Florida, and it's going to provide lots of benefits. But I think the Indian River Lagoon is the first place we're going to focus. Sure. Yeah, I think a, a lot of exciting things to come there. I'm going to run you through. I've kept you a while, but I want to get my, my usual questions in, so you'll have to bear with me. Let's start with one that's a weird question to ask, but I always phrase it this way and then rephrase it differently. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of? It doesn't have to be a thing itself. It can be your impact on someone else, something else's impact on you and how how you operate. Anything in that in that realm. Wow. That's a that's a good question. You know, I, I, I would say, and it's you know, sometimes you lose sight of those things, but you know, the the, the Everglades and I'm a, I'm a focus specifically on the, you know, the, the, the stormwater treatment areas because there was really not much known about them. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, the fact that we went from kind of one test, the STA-1 East, to the rest. Now we've got hundreds of thousands of acres of stormwater treatment areas. That was a pretty big deal. And, yeah. and figuring out water quality treatment and what it looked like and, and all of that and working with my colleagues at DEP during the time was, was, was pretty cool. When it came to your time in government, at DEP, was there something there? Make we all make decisions, and you were there for twenty years. You moved to TNC, doing great things there. Was there something there though that you felt maybe was undone, or hey, it would have been nice to have seen that finish? Was it the ever? Was it the Everglades? I, I would never say that because you know that that's just. I I would like to see it done in my lifetime, but you know that's such a big thing that mm. that I don't I don't know about that. You know, I I would say that, you know, just a, a recognition that, you know, water and, and maybe what I would say is really bringing a, a and it's much easier said than done is kind of comprehensive view of and I'm just I'm only focused on water since this is a, you know, a water podcast, <laughs> you know, even at DEP, it's it's while they all kind of talk to one another, I would still say it was, it was, you know, it was siloed then and it's still kind of siloed. Um, sure. And, and so 
How do you get to that, to your point, Brett, of, you know, if we're talking about Indian River Lagoon, how do you get all of the folks, whether it's the funding folks and the regulatory folks and all kind of together and say, what's the one thing that we, if we all kind of row in the same direction, we can all get done Mm. instead of saying, oh, well, no, that's your program. Your words to God's ears there. (laughs) Are you optimistic about the future of the environment in Florida and why? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, most definitely. Uh, that's the only, I mean, I, I couldn't get up every morning if I if I wasn't optimistic. You know, will there be changes? Yeah. Will it all be the way I want it? Definitely not. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do believe, and I'll continue to say this, that, you know, at the heart of it, people care. And I think if we can figure out a way to capture, and this is just a side note that one day, you know, on one of your future podcasts, you can ask, you know, folks to come talk more about this. But, you know, if we if we can really capture all of the benefits that, you know, our natural systems provide, mm. then we'll be much further along, right? You know, instead of whether it's just aesthetics, it doesn't matter whether, you you know, you like critters or you don't like critters or, you know, whatever, that, you know, our natural lands, not just lands, natural landscapes mm-hmm. are providing all kinds of benefits to all of us. And and so my optimism is we'll recognize all of that and that will, that, that, that'll move us much further along. Nice. What keeps you up at night regarding <laughs> the, the environment? Is there something that's like, gosh, well, I don't know how we're going to fix this. I, I don't know that, actually what keeps me awake at night especially being new in this in this position maybe it's going to sound corny is not wanting to disappoint both my my spouse of course and those people who got me to where I am right all of those leaders including you and and others who I have tremendous respect for my staff you know my board of trustees you know to me that's that's what keeps me awake at night is you know I have a lot of smart people that I rely on and that you know advise me and so to me, I, I'm not worried about whether we can do it or not. I'm just worried about whether I can help them mm. and enable them to do it. I don't think that's corny at all, man. What advice do you give to young people who are either entering or maybe interested in entering, whether it be public service in the environmental field or the environment from an NGO standpoint? What would you tell them? So what I would say, again, I'm only going to talk about TNC, it would be do it. There is... And again, you know, I, I recognize I'm biased, but, you know, as an organization, I mean, from the top, you know, Jen Morris, our CEO, all the way down to the land steward who's got the drip torch in his lighting prescribed fires, the passion and commitment is absolutely unbelievable. And, and it, it, it's not just Florida. It's, you know, I meet people from all over the globe and that commitment is to a person and they're your friend right off the bat. And so what I would suggest is if you're interested, find somebody, ask them, get involved, volunteer, figure out how to do it. And then, you know, on on the public side, I would, you know, the same thing, say that we need people who are passionate, not necessarily looking to, you know, to to get wealthy because you're not going to do that anywhere in, you know, in the public sector if you want to help make a difference, you know, you can, and it just requires, you know, working hard. I think that's a perfect place to end. Greg Connect, thank you so much for being here, man. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Res and CN Shoreline. 
don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Swan for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bow Spring from the Bow Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer.